I remember being a young bishop and having a member of my ward tell me they don't believe as they used to, and they have begun to question their faith. The hardest part of these scenarios was that it felt like they were looking to me for answers, when in reality, they were coming to me looking for support and hope. These leadership scenarios can quickly remind you how unprepared you might be to minister to individuals or loved ones in your life who've begun to question their faith. This is why Leading Saints created the Questioning Saints Library, where we interviewed over 20 experts with the intent to better understand how we can help individuals who are starting to question their faith. For all the details on how you can access the Questioning Saints Library, text the word LEAD to 474747 or visit leadingsaints.org slash questioning. Again, text the word LEAD to 474747 or visit leadingsaints.org slash questioning. One of the most often asked questions that I receive at Leading Saints is in the context of how do I deal with a difficult leader or how do I deal with bureaucracy of church leadership? It's so difficult when I'm trying to make a difference, but I just keep getting pushed down by the leadership above me or the bureaucracy above me. How do we deal with that? Well, that's what we're going to discuss in this episode. My name is Kurt Frankham. I am the host of the Leading Saints podcast. And if you're new to Leading Saints, we are a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And we do that through various methods, one of those being this podcast, which is one of the more popular uh, venues where people come, listen to Leadership Thought, and uh, hopefully gives you more to think on. And also we have our website at leadingsaints.org, which has thousands of articles and different resources on there. Um, also our virtual summits that we put out every few months. Uh, you can check out those at leadingsaints.org, get a taste of a deep dive into various topics. So that's what we do to Leading Saints, and we're glad you found us. Now, like I said, in this in this uh, interview, we talk with Andrew Marshall, who works for a remarkable organization called Partnership for Public Service. He's back at East and in Washington, D.C. And Partnership for Public Service is a pretty cool company. It's a cool nonprofit company because Partnership for Public Service is to the government as leading saints is to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They're a nonprofit third-party organization that simply exists to help that larger organization succeed in the context of leadership. And so when I was connected to Andrew through Lark Galley, shout out to Lark, I was so excited to hear what he did, and I was sort of shocked to hear there was another organization out there like Leading Saints, but just for a different organization. So really smart leadership guy. This will not be the last time you hear Andrew on the podcast. Uh, just such a fun discussion. I think you'll enjoy it. How to lead within a system or a bureaucracy. Here is my interview with Andrew Marshall. Today, I have the opportunity to connect with Andrew Marshall on the other side of the country in uh, the D.C. area. Where are you, Andrew? I am just outside of D.C., a couple of miles north in Silver Spring, Maryland, just two uh, really two minutes from the D.C. temple. Oh, nice. Nice. Because mm -hmm. uh, nobody really lives in D.C. They just work in D.C. for the most part. Right? There are many, <laughs> yes, who go in and out of D.C. every day, which I've done hundreds of times. Nice. And, and where are you originally from? Originally from Salt Lake City, Utah, born and raised in South Salt Lake, uh, the Mill Creek area. Nice. Awesome. And so uh, I, I, I'm intrigued. To, I, first, I've got to give a shout out to Lark Galley, who is your mother-in-law, who was kind enough to email me and say, you got to talk to this kid. 
<laughs> Andrew, my son-in-law, uh, he's doing a lot of cool things with leadership as it relates to the, the government. And, uh, and I was intrigued by the email. We had a great conversation and uh, it was very apparent that we needed to record something and uh, share some of your perspective. So tell us uh, a little bit about your journey to the DC area at, and uh, what influenced you to create a, a career in leadership and then what it is you do in the organization you work with. Sure. Uh, well, I've certainly always been fascinated by how people can work effectively together uh, as the fourth child of 10 kids growing up. Uh, <laughs> you, and, I, and I was right in the thick of that, seeing what are the dynamics at play that lead for lead to productivity, that lead to goodwill. And during my mission um, in Portugal, had a, an opportunity to see that even further and observe leaders. Uh, I think I started really my journey in studying leadership on my mission, both practicing and studying it. After my mission, not too long after, was able to meet Ariel Galley, uh, who's now Ariel Galley Marshall. And we were able to serve an inner city mission together before we had kids in Salt really? Lake. Yeah, uh, it was a welfare service mission. So so I was a, a bishop in South Salt Lake and had these inner city missionaries that, you know, I had about four sets. So you were one of those? We were, yes, yes, we were one of those. Uh, we were in the Rose Park Stake in the I'm going to get Mount Ensign uh, Ward, Spanish speaking, uh, and had a really phenomenal experience. She was a young women's president. I was young men's president and fell in love with that experience and really kind of being in the thick of service there uh, and friendship. Uh, with, okay, with so so how there. how did that how did that mission get arranged? Because typically, you know, it's older, near retire age. Uh, right, people, right, right. Well, it's, uh, all things go back to Lark Galley. It seems here. Uh, she, <laughs> she, and uh, these mother in laws. What are we right, going to do with them? That's right. She and her uh, husband, my father in law, who's also fantastic, Craig Galley. They had done that, um, and they'd actually done that when you could do it with children. And so Ariel had done it as well as a younger person. And we were able to just, you know, essentially submit papers. We didn't have kids yet. And we wanted to, that's how we wanted to spend our time. Uh, and it was, it was life-changing. Uh, yeah. And that sort of sent me into getting an MPA to really get into that service orientation and get some practical skills around it. Uh, yeah. which, and they didn't give you, they, yeah. they didn't give you any pushback like, oh, you're a little young. Maybe you guys should have kids. Have you thought of that? No, that, that, did, that? no that did not happen. Oh, that's that did awesome. not, I mean, okay. at least not, not in front of us. Well, I realize that I'm interrupting the flow of your, no, your narrative here, but uh, I, I got to say, like, if there's anybody in the Wasatch Front, like these inner city missions are one of the the greatest secrets of the church. Like, and, and I don't think they're able to actively like go out and like campaign or, or recruit people to serve in these missions. But if you are nearing that retired age and just need. And maybe you're not in a, a place where you can maybe leave your home for several years. Like this is such an opportunity that bless bishops' lives, like myself. Like I could never ever have done uh, the the service I did in the inner city without these missionaries. Anyways, commercial no, no. ended. But yeah, uh, I, anything to add? I will. I will. I, I will echo the commercial. And I think nearly retired or uh, again pre kids. I think they still allow for that. And yeah. it was so formative for us to be really spending almost all of our discretionary time with the youth down there in the uh, Mount, I want to say Mount Pleasant. There's a Mount Pleasant branch here in the DC stake, the Mount Ensign <laughs> Ward. And and I still have great friendships from that. In fact, one of the young men that I served with just sent me, sent me a text of a letter that I'd written him now, uh, I don't know, uh, almost 15 years ago. Uh, yeah. And it's it was a very formative experience for us. So 
I would great. endorse so that. You said that influenced you to get your MPA, you said? What's right, that? right. So I got my undergrad in journalism at the University of Utah, worked at the Deseret News and the Tribune a little bit. And then during that inner city mission, wanted to go and again, get some practical skills in service to others. And the uh, Master in Public Administration program at BYU was a perfect wow. fit. Uh, so went to uh, to that program, had a phenomenal experience, and then came out to D.C. Ariel grew up out here uh, in our, the same ward that we're in right now, the Kensington Ward, just outside of the, of the Beltway, just outside of D.C., right near the Washington, D.C. Temple. And we're back to her roots, which has been phenomenal. Been out here 10 years. Uh, I've been literally at my job 10 years uh, tomorrow. So uh, wow. it's been a decade of uh, amazing experiences out here. And uh, the leadership piece has just kind of continued to grow. Uh, as I've been in my work, a lot of it at first was supporting leadership programs, learning from executive coaches, um, reading books, kind of trying to become more of a scholar in this field. And then the practitioner, the, you know, the practitioner uh, came out as well. I was able to go to Georgetown's executive uh, leadership coaching program, which was another very transformative experience for me. Uh, and now I'm doing kind of a, a mix of all of it. I'm uh, developing leaders, facilitating and coaching. I'm also, I'm also leading the team. I'm, I'm leading that arm of the organization. So we work with four or 5,000 leaders each year. I guess I haven't exactly talked about uh, where I work and what I do. I'm happy to share yeah, that. Yeah, tell us. Helpful. So yeah. uh, I work at the Partnership for Public Service. Uh, we're a nonpartisan nonprofit organization with the lofty mission of making government more effective for the American people. Okay, I just want to call a timeout right there. So when <laughs> this is when when you explained who you work for, what they do, a nonprofit organization yeah. that helps a much larger organization develop leaders, I thought, holy cow, Andrew, <laughs> we have the same mission, right? But obviously you you do what you do for the U.S. government, and I do what I do for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, right? But we're independent parties, right? We're not, it's not like they created us or maybe sometimes – there's people in the government that want you to go away, and there's maybe people in the church want me, us to go away. I don't know. But but nonetheless, our mission is the same. We see this gap of leadership in these larger organizations, and we think, well, maybe we can help, right? Exactly, Kurt. And it was so fun to talk with you earlier and see the parallel. Uh, it is exactly that. We've seen that leadership is the number one driver uh, for employee engagement. We've seen that employee engagement has a direct connection to mission impact. And so if you have an effective leader, I mean, it's pretty obvious. Anyone in the audience can think of the best leader they've had and the difference it made for them. Uh, they yeah. can think of the worst leader they've had and the difference that made for them. And that then, of course, sends waves out. And so if, if I can work with 25 executives from across government who are collectively supervising 625,000 people and have a you know, trillion dollar spend in their budget, and they can become more effective in what they're doing, that's going to make a massive difference for the safety and the health and the general welfare of the American people. And that's really yeah. what, what we aim to do, which yeah. is it, exciting. Yeah, I, I was inspired by what you're doing and, and it's awesome. And so typically I, I would imagine like before I we met, I would have assumed that maybe there's some, you know, there's lots of third party organizations that work with the government, but typically it's through a government contract, right? They put a bid out and, uh, you know, for whatever service and maybe they do have some leadership bids, I don't know. And so then they would hire different companies to come in and, and the government's got money, right? And so... That, that may be a business model, but you're saying like you don't work, I, and I don't even know if these those types of contracts exist, but you're not, 
are you out uh, bidding for government contracts or? It, uh, we will sometimes bid uh, against, you know, some of the big competitors uh, in the, in the kind of private uh, sector consulting uh, practice, mm-hmm. but the difference, and I think it's a pretty big difference and it's one uh, that makes the pitch so much easier when we're talking to people is that we have a mission uh, and that yeah. really our mission is to make them stronger and better. And, any revenue we generate goes back to our mission. It's it is not about uh, it's not about our bottom line, and it's not about their bottom line. You know, all of it is really in service to something bigger, which is yeah. uh, something that's easy to wake up for every morning. Yeah, and and you deal with the same uh, monster I deal with, which is fundraising. Right, we're just <laughs> yeah. uh, we're always looking for opportunities to fundraise because that's what fuels the mission is these independent funds that keep things going. So you may interact with, regardless of there, if there's a government contract in place or not, you'll still jump in and, and engage with certain departments or organizations within the government. Right. Yeah. There are times when we'll do things pro bono. There are foundations that will support us uh, if it's an issue that they care a lot about. And then certainly we can, if there's a program uh, that an agency wants to engage in, they can pull from their training and development budgets and you know fund that way. So there's a few different ways that we'll get funding. But yes, it is definitely top of mind, especially these days. But we are seeing now, again, I'm going to sound like everyone's least favorite advertisement, but now more than ever, uh, leadership <laughs> matters. Uh, you know, it really does. And I know, you know, it's, it's different than saying that about a product. It matters so much right now, leading in crisis. And, and, and government has the ability to make a difference in big ways, you know, to find vaccines, to address systemic injustice, to address challenges that are bigger than a nonprofit can handle and not the motive necessarily that the private sector may have. Uh, so it's, it's, I think it's a special time right now. Yeah. And we're going to touch on various parallels that we uh, experience as two nonprofit organizations, but typically when you think about leadership in the government, like obviously they're, you know, politicians, they have their own like level and, uh, their own category of jokes as far as leadership <laughs> jokes go. Right? right. But then just like you think about the, the state worker or the federal worker and, you know, you go into the DMV or whatever, and, you know, or a federal office or whatever. And it's sort of like, yeah, this is where the lazies come and, you, you know, it's impossible to fire people. Right. They're like the brunt of all these <laughs> silly jokes. Right? right. And so, and, and on the church side of things, I don't think people are necessarily making jokes, but because there's maybe a sacred spiritual uh, flavor to that leadership experience. But nonetheless, you see people sort of roll their eyes maybe when they talk about their bishop or when they talk about their their time in an elders quorum presidency and sort of the leadership uh, struggle that it was, you know. And so I, I'm intrigued to sort of dive into this as far as like because there's so much bureaucracy in these, in, in not only the the government. I mean, to say the least. I mean, it's just a huge bureaucracy. And then in the church, we're we're growing. Obviously, we're smaller organizations on the local level, but we still wrestle with bureaucracy. So, what? How do you respond to people when they kind of say, "Well, wait a minute," like there's no you know, the, the, your industry is the example of b- what bad leadership is. Like, where do you go from there? I think like a lot of things, you need to get close to uh, a situation to better understand it and develop some sympathy, maybe empathy, understanding of what's actually at play. We have a program called the Service to America Medals that celebrates uh, public servants and the good that they're doing. Uh, and there, there are so many phenomenal stories. I mean, everyone's seeing, you know, Tony Fauci right now, uh, who's become kind of uh, the soothsayer oh, yeah. of the nation on, on the pandemic. I could share hundreds of stories right now 
people like Pius Banis, who worked for Department of Homeland Security during the uh, Haitian earthquake in 2010, and how he was able to navigate bureaucracy to get over a thousand orphans from Haiti to their adoptive families in the U.S. when they were in great peril, actual peril for their lives, and how he was able to, again, navigate bureaucracy, show that commitment that he, you know, that oath of office that he took when he signed up and in service to the public. Um, Marshall Lynn another story I love, she works at the Center for Disease Control. She's been a researcher for 40 years up there. And over the course of her research, she has studied developmental disabilities with uh, among children and better understood the autism spectrum as a result. And when you understand that spectrum and what are the characteristics of these kids, then physicians can diagnose them and then parents and teachers can better help them. And that's going to help millions of kids uh, across the country. Um, so, I, I mean, I'll, I, I, I could spend the whole podcast telling these yeah. stories, but once you get to see what they're doing and talk to them and hear about their own service orientation, all of a sudden it feels a little less like that stereotypical paper pusher. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And and I appreciate, you know, the, the emphasis you made as far as gaining a new perspective or having some sympathy, the closer you get to some of these individuals and their experiences. And that's why I love our lay leadership model is that after my time of serving as a bishop for five years and a stake presidency for a handful of years, like anytime somebody approaches me with one of those stories of like, okay, you won't believe this disaster that, you know, my bishop or my Relief Society president, you know, instigated or whatever, it always helps me step back and say, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for that individual because I've been in that in those shoes. And so I bet there's more to this story than maybe you're seeing, right? right. Because it is, it's so easy to sort of get critical about, especially on the government level, right? But to just step back and say, actually, there's some phenomenal people who are doing some remarkable things that aren't getting paid uh, the salaries that they should be getting paid to do it. Right? So many of them are taking a, a cut in a lot of different ways. And in some, in many cases, working all the harder for it. I'm, I'm, I'm coaching uh, someone at HHS right now, Health and Human Services, who is really leading the response for deploying the appropriations from Congress to hospitals around the country. Mm. It is a 24-7 job for him right now, yeah. uh, getting people the, the materials, the supplies they need to keep people safe and healthy through this extremely challenging time. And that's not something he, you know, he, he could be having a pretty cushy budget job uh, a lot of different places, but this is what he, he's chosen yeah. to do. I would yeah. also, though, add, not to reinforce the stereotypes, but we at, at, in our organization also believe government can and needs to get better. Uh, yeah, we are not right. here just to celebrate and say, like, hey, it's all good. Uh, everything's working out. We love to celebrate these powerful stories, these good stories. We think there's not enough positive light. And we're pushing. We're pushing for reform on the systems and structure side. We're pushing for better leadership. We're pushing for better talent. So there's also the push side. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's another parallel where, you know, we love to highlight through our How I Lead segment of some remarkable leaders and what they're doing. But also, as listeners of this podcast know, we aren't afraid to step back and look at some pretty serious issues and say, man, something about this cultural norm has got to change. Let's talk about it. You know, let's point at the, the elephant in the room and say, how do we get this out of here? Because mm -hmm. it's not helping with that growth. And so, yeah, and, and that's why <laughs> there's a huge uh, uh, promotion for both of our organizations. Our <laughs> type of organizations <laughs> are crucial to these larger organizations like the church or to the government. And I know some people may disagree with that, but it allows us opportunity to step out of the context of some of these things as a third party and say, 
let's look at this straightforward and see how we can improve it. And we're willing to ro roll up our sleeves and, and help with the dirty work to make it happen. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, and I, you know, I've seen this in church too, right now serving in the state presidency of the Washington DC stake. And I am convinced that leadership makes the biggest difference uh, yeah. for, for how we move the work forward, for how we follow the vision that we've been given by president Nelson so much of it has to do with effective leadership. Yeah, for sure. All right, well, let's jump into sort of the, the weeds here and really get uh, into some uh, leadership principles. And, and it all goes back to this concept of the bureaucracy and leading within a system or a bureaucracy. Because sometimes so overwhelming, like the, you know, I think of the the young women's president who's wakes up with this inspiration. She's excited to carry out this plan, A, B, and C. And, you know, she gets her counselors together. They're excited. Maybe the bishop's on board and maybe leaning into like, okay, well, let's see how this goes. And then it takes one phone call for the stake president to shut it all down and say, nope, we're not doing that. And then you're like, ah, right. And they become disengaged and they think, why try anymore? Or even a larger, you know, the a stake may be excited about something, but then a certain letter sent down from, you know, the, the general church authorities and things that sort of dampens that, that idea a little bit. So where do we start to really understand how we can lead within a system or a bureaucracy? Well, I think one of the things to keep in mind is that you are part of something bigger. You are part of a big system. Uh, in our case, in the church, you're part of something really, really vast, uh, yeah. uh Within the organization, it's 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 extremely big, but we're also so talking about something that cuts across the lines of the veil. You know, both sides of the veil. This is so big. It the is the kingdom of God, right? It's, <laughs> right. It's cosmic, and so zooming out, I think, can be helpful. And remembering the principle of stewardship that we are entrusted with something for a season. It's gone on before us. It will go on after us. Some of what we do will really shine and sing, and some of it may not stick or work. Uh, and we are doing what we can with what we have where we are. I think that's a uh, Teddy Roosevelt quote. And that, I think, is a helpful mindset to have when working in a bureaucracy. I'm part of something bigger, uh, and I have to remember to, again, do my part where I am, but not get too attached to my plan or to... Uh, to me as a leader, because the season will end. Yeah. And and how do you maintain that perspective when sometimes the our official leaders with the titles, they sort of make the organization seem smaller? Like this is this is my sandbox. Like I'm in charge for this this time. And uh, I, I get this is the kingdom of God. And that's why we got to, you know, listen to me and do do what I want. And so sometimes it can feel very disengaging when and it becomes hard to maintain that perspective that we're part of something bigger. Yeah, I think a couple of different frameworks that come immediately to mind. One, a friend and, and, and colleague of mine on the government side, Liz Wiseman, who I know has also been on the show. Oh, yeah. You know, she, she talks about the multipliers. And that would be a great framing to kind of keep in mind to this context. I think about Jim Collins' research, where he's looked at the level five leaders, and he identifies these two characteristics of deep humility and fierce will. It's these people that will work tirelessly but it's never about them. You know, that's where you get that kind of multiplying effect. And so I would say empowering others and getting out of their way wherever you are. So if you are an elders quorum president, empowering the ministering brothers and sisters to do a lot of the work and the counseling and the service, 
if you are a primary president, allowing the teachers to do a lot of the creative teaching and instructing and guiding and mentoring of the children, it's following President Nelson's lead, honestly. He's saying right now, this doesn't need to be top down. Let's all be part of this. Youth, get engaged with ministering. Uh, Youth, get engaged with the work on both sides of the veil. Bishops, start delegating so much of what you have to the elders quorum presidencies and Relief Society presidencies. Um, If we could actually do this, it would make a big difference for how we are part of this system, how we are part of this bureaucracy. All of a sudden, we'd feel a lot less ownership and a whole lot more stewardship. Yeah. And the principle I'm feeling is coming to the surface and all that is really as, as a leader establishing that vision within your organization, right? That powering those below you rather than wait, having them wait for your marching orders. And uh, that, I mean, that's sort of begins the momentum of some of this change, right? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. I think that, you know, again, you think about the leaders who are most effective. Here's another quote that I probably should have actually pulled up, but Lao Tzu, <laughs> who talks about the leader who, when all is said and done, the people look around and they say, we did it ourselves. That leader that almost is invisible uh, because he or she is empowering so much, listening so much, but yet doing uh, so much in that process. Uh, that that is the that's the leader I think we can look for. You know, we might think about you know one measure is how disruptive is the transition when a one bishop leaves and another comes in, or one Relief Society president leaves and another comes in. How much of it was about your administration versus the, uh, you know, I single to the glory of God approach, uh, or the love of God and love of neighbor approach. If people are too attached to the person, there may be more opportunity for stewardship and leading effectively in the system. Yeah. And so help, help me out with that, with that is, you know, using the transition context, you know, a bishop getting released or at least I'd be getting released a new one coming. There is sort of this reset, right? Like the new guy's got to sort of learn certain, certain things, a lot of it administrative or procedural uh, things that they're getting used to. So does like even a hypothetical example come to mind as far as like, are you saying like that transition should, that the ward shouldn't even skip a beat, right? Because the culture is so established that the whoever's at the reins really doesn't matter because there's so much leading happening in everybody's stewardship, not just the stewardship of the of the administration of that, that leadership. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think of uh, one of the great leaders I've ever seen in the, in the church was James Baird. He was the state president in Washington, D.C. stake. I was on the high council uh, while he was in that role, and he had a, a sudden and tragic passing. He passed away unexpectedly while in the role of the state president. And his style was so broad-minded. He was such a facilitator, whether he was in a bishop's council meeting or a high council meeting or with his presidency or with our state conference. He was such a facilitator and brought out so much in so many that when that tragedy occurred and we had a new state presidency or a new state president who who's our current state president and was one of his counselors, it was beautiful to see how it continued. You know, that's a, that's a pretty stark example, but if it had been all, and we loved him and we did pay tribute to him and we honored the work that he had done. And I still do that. And I still think of him. It's not to say that the person doesn't matter or that they don't make a difference. It's not to say you get swallowed up in the, the cause and there's you, you lose your identity, 
but it was it was really how he brought what he brought out in others and how that set us up for the next uh, the next stage of the work in the DC stake. Yeah. And, and so I let you use that term like facilitator and, and takes connecting that with, uh, you know, enhancing the stewardship of those that you serve with. So when you facilitate that um, and empower others around you, if that leader suddenly tragically is gone or gets released suddenly or called away on a mission or whatever it is, that everybody has already been empowered and feels connected to the, the deeper mission. So they can just carry on even though the figurehead has been changed. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, I, I, I wish that ward and branch councils could see themselves as a team, not as leaders of, you know, siloed organizations within the unit um, that they could see themselves as leaders across a system, enterprise leaders collectively working on behalf of the full uh, unit and the connections between children and youth and adults and the bo- work on both sides of the veil. Again, I, th- I think that this is happening more and more, but it, but much of it does come from how are bishops facilitating and empowering um, mm-hmm. that that team as an as yeah. one example. So let's take it a layer deeper here as far as like, what is that? What's the day to day sitting in the meeting? What does that facilitation look like? Like what's the habit or I mean, how can a leader listen to this and maybe start implementing what a facilitator is and what, what, what their habits look like? Sure. Well, I would say very, you know, and you've had other great episodes on topics like this. Is the leader asking questions or are they giving direction? Is the leader listening or talking? I mean, again, Liz, Liz, Liz Wiseman will talk about kind of you have your, you know, five rocks or whatever. Have you used those for the course of the the full ward council meeting. Um, you know how many how how many times are you giving yourself? Are you allowing yourself to comment? And a bishop may be inclined to do that a lot, and he might also feel like people want that and expect that. Um, and so so resisting those urges, I think, creates um, a sense of facilitation. Thinking about the strengths and talents of the people in the room and how they can multiply those. You know, going back to the parable of the talents. How do, how do you become the steward that uh, is really spreading what you have? And each person has something unique to offer in their calling. They are inspired callings. So what is that? And how do you get out of the way uh, and let them let them use their talent to strengthen and build the kingdom? Yeah. And, and uh, I think a great, you know, if people do want to like do a deep dive into some of that, like you mentioned, the, the book Multipliers by Liz Wiseman, she mm-hmm. talks about these concepts of accidental diminishers. And I remember before I read the book thinking like, you know, I'm not like the best leader in the world, but I think I got my game pretty, pretty well together. Like, I think I'm a generally pretty above average leader. But then you read that, like, for example, one of her accidental diminishers is the is the idea maker or the idea guy or whatever. I'm like, oh my goodness, like <laughs> I'm that guy. Like yeah. I've always got an idea. You know, it's my creative marketing background. I'm like, hey, what if we do this? And what about that? And then we'll do this. And especially coming when I was the bishop and that was coming from me, people are like, oh, I guess, I guess we're just doing the bishop's idea. Okay, here we go. Right. And I didn't realize I was diminishing the intelligence in the room. So um, I think what you're saying, these principles are so spot on. And if a leader really wants to do a deep dive, like I, I would say that Multiplier's book is definitely in the top five of books that a church leader needs to be referring to often outside of, of course, the handbooks and the scriptures, um, because it is it just really puts you in check of like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of 
getting out of bounds here and diminishing some of the intelligence in the room. Uh, totally. It's a perfect framework for the steward leader, for the leader in a bureaucracy, for the leader uh, in a system. And, you know, I think related thinking about how much are you thinking about yourself or getting credit? Um, are you wishing you got more credit? Do you like like it when people are praising you from the pulpit? Are you know that 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 sense of like wanting and needing credit for what you do can be uh, something to 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 watch for. It's not to say you don't want to feel valued or rec- or, or honored for your work, but I think a lot of that happens between you and the Lord. Your own experience, your own check-ins, your own. You are the steward. Really, He's given you the stewardship, and I do think that. That would be another measure is how much am I looking for credit and how much am I wishing I had more of that? Yeah. You know, and this, I'm going to take a little bit of a left turn here, but I think it, I'm glad you brought up this far, this concept of, of credit because in our culture, a lot of the time it feels like we're getting credit when we're getting certain callings, right? Like when you're go from being a bishopric member to being a bishop, well, that's because I'm getting sort of credit that I'm doing a good job. Or I remember that feeling of going from bishop in the stake presidency. I'm like, yeah, well, this is like the natural promotion, quote unquote promotion, right? And and we can lock into that a little bit. And because leadership is so interesting this way, I remember the quote by, or the story that uh, Elder Uchtdorf shared that he was on an assignment with, I believe it was President Faust. And gave the the famous, uh, you know, they're at this church event and everybody's sort of happy to see general authorities there shaking hands and sort of, a, you know, throwing praise their way. They just feel so blessed to be in the room with these leaders, right? And uh, I forget the exact uh, verbiage of this, but uh, basically Elder Faust said, you know, recognize that, that praise and that, um, that credit, you know, to use your term, but don't inhale, mm-hmm. right? I would say it is impossible not to inhale. Like it's good to be the person like, okay, I'm keeping it at arm's length. I realize they're they're respecting the calling and not me. But man, it's like telling someone jump in a lake and don't get wet. Like (laughs) to me, it's just, it's impossible. Like being the bishop, being the Relief Society president, it's regardless, even if you try not to inhale it, it will come and it will play to your ego to some extent, even if you think it's not. And so- just really ch- keeping yourself, you know, going back to that credit idea is, are you really, you know, wh- what is your relationship with that credit look like, right? Yeah. I mean, ego is the enemy of a leader. Uh, it really is. It will, it can destroy a leader because then they start feeling invincible. They stop listening. They start feeling like they are the only decision maker, that they are the ones that are carrying it all out and that it's all about uh, them. Uh, and they can do that with so many good intentions, but you've really got to watch that. And you're right. It's, it's hard to resist. I, I, one, one thing, one, one framework or one framing maybe for this, David Brooks recently gave a talk at BYU, uh, the New York Times columnist and author. He talks about happiness versus joy in community. And this, I think, mm-hmm. is, is relevant. He says, uh, you can be happy alone. You win a game. You get a promotion. You feel big about yourself. Happiness is the expansion of self. Uh, Mm. And he says, but joy is the merger of self. It is a kind of thing that happens when you forget where you end and something else begins, uh, when you really are seeing deeply into each other. It reminds me of DNC 5119, where it says, whoso is found a faithful, a just, and a wise steward shall enter into the joy of his Lord. This kind of entering into the joy is what we should be seeking, this merger of self. It doesn't mean we don't exist. It doesn't mean we won't feel good when someone says, they, when someone thanks us. 
uh, when right. someone recognizes us, but that it is, it's not the expansion of us. It's a further merger of us and, and the work of the Lord. And that is joy. I mean, Alma, when he was getting into the waters, uh, what does he say? The church is just beginning. And he steps into the water with Helam. And he says, O Lord, pour out thy spirit upon thy servant, that he may do this work with holiness of heart. Uh, Mm. This sense of holiness of heart is a way to kind of protect against ego. Uh, You see Ammon maybe grapple with that a little bit in Alma 26, you know, grappling with ego. It's an interesting study across scripture is how leaders grapple with ego and uh, praise and recognition and what they take to the Lord to kind of almost cleanse themselves of the ego that can get in the way and be part of something bigger, merge themselves with, in this case, you know, the system. Yeah. Now that, that's such powerful uh, perspectives and quotes. And and I just, I'm just thinking what a magnificent discussion this could be in like a high council setting or with a state council or ward council of just saying, let's talk about ego for a minute. Like how does it manifest itself? And I love this. I love that uh, the dichotomy of happiness and joy where, is it is our is our whole community our whole, our whole ward feeling a sense of joy when mm-hmm. we do succeed or is it just the the bishopric when they get the the quarterly reports be thinking oh we did it you know we hit this goal you know <laughs> or what or maybe just the leader saying you know i you know i feel like so many people have texted me that i'm a good bishop so i must be doing a good job but how do we create visions and purpose and movement and momentum in a, in a ward so that as things progress, everybody's feeling joy there. And that's, and that's really the, the power of culture, right? Like when the culture gets ignited in some of these things, that's a great perspective. So, and I think president Nelson is the, is a, such a steward leader who understands how to reframe the system. And if we were ministering the way that he has cast that vision, there would be joy in every congregation. And you've, you've seen it. We've seen it. Uh, I think of ministering brothers who have shown up to give a blessing, who have shown up to dig post holes, who have shown up to uh, just connect, to send a letter to connect with my kids. And if we were all doing that, there would be this almost holiness of heart and merger of self into the cause. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm, and I'm thinking of, you know, it just starts at some of the basics. I'm right now, I'm reading a book by uh, Mark Johnson, who is a, I'm going to interview here soon. He's a, he was a protege of Clay Christensen. Uh. And, he, you know, Clay Christensen was famous with this analogy of, you know, people go to the hardware store not to buy a screw, but they go to the hardware store to buy a hole in the wall, right? I mean, that's, even <laughs> though they're buying a screw, what they really want is a hole in the wall, right? Uh, for whatever project they're working on. And I, it made me pause to think, you know, I've, and I've heard that before, and but this time it made me pause to think like, really, like in order for people to feel that joy in maybe a ward, you first have to understand like, why are they showing up? And you'll know that like, think back to your time in, in the inner city wars that you served in, that their hole in the wall or their their purpose or reason to coming to church may be very different than maybe somebody in Alpine, Utah, more affluent area, you know, why they're coming to church, right? And so for a leader to really sit back and say like, I get that the sacrament's important and, you know, that's why they're coming, but but what more, why, what about the sacrament is is getting them to show up or what about the, the second hour? And of course, you know, this is, I hate the pandemic because nothing's <laughs> normal anymore, but anyway, but even during the pandemic, like it's maybe asking yourself, where are people finding that purpose of, of them showing up to church? Like where are they finding it now and how can we facilitate that 
a little bit deeper. Any any thoughts on that? No, I think that and seeing I love I love that thinking about the why and the motivation of the of the individual members uh, and what are they merged with? What are they attached to? Is a leader attached to the you know again to use that that phrase the expansion of self? Um, is a member attached to another member, uh, or can we actually be fully committed to that covenant we made to the Savior, to taking His name upon us? Uh, that's an attack. If we can get to that why and that attachment, that if we merge there uh, with Him, then it's going to motivate the kinds of behaviors that will keep the system really, really running, no matter who's going in and out of leadership positions, no matter what kinds of special initiatives take place or what kinds of policies come down uh, from Salt Lake that may or may not completely align to what we had been doing. Uh, if we are attached to him, if, if we allow him to draw him, uh, draw us to him as he calls in 3rd Nephi 27, then this will all work. And I love the idea of a leader thinking about that. Where are their motivations? Why are they coming? Yeah. And and I see this, just give it maybe a more concrete example. I hope we're not dragging this out too much, but it is an important concept to, to ponder over is uh, I often, you often see scenarios where maybe there's a inactive young man in the ward. And as a 14 year old, you know, he doesn't have supportive parents or a home life that's getting in the church. And so maybe the bishop will take upon himself, uh, you know, supposed to focus on the youth, encouraging this young man to come to church. And suddenly, you know, some momentum starts and over a few years, you know, he goes to seminary, he graduates from seminary and it becomes like this bishop can suddenly get in this mode of like defining their purpose and role on it's going to feel remarkable when I can be at the airport with my arm around this young man and where he's going on a mission, like mission accomplished. And so, and that creates a lot of happiness in that individual experience or journey as a leader. But at the same time, the rest of the ward and the the deeper connection and, and joy is sort of lost because day to day, week to week, the bishop feels like, ah, yeah, look what look at this progress. I got this photo now in my office of helping this young man, which is important. But at the same time, it's taking opportunity to step back and say, all right, what are we doing as a culture of award so that we're all not that I'm not the only one having that type of experience, but everybody or the majority of the ward is having a similar experience, shepherding others along in the gospel of Christ. Yeah. I, lo- I like that. You know, as you share a success story, are you sharing it because you want people to hear what you did uh, and mm-hmm. what you accomplished? Or are you sharing it to ignite 50 more of those experiences among those that you are leading and connecting with. And, you know, tangentially related to what you said, also being mindful of predestined outcomes or destinations that you want to arrive at with somebody Mm -hmm. and being present. I think that's another uh, element of, of steward leadership. You've got a plot of land uh, and, and some seeds and you're there to cultivate here and now and do your part where you are. And it's going, and again, this garden that you have, it existed before you and there's trees growing up that you had no part in, but maybe you're helping kind of prune and there are going to be trees that come beyond, that come after you. And you can't be too attached to a certain kind of outcome, um, but just do what you have with the plot of land that you've been given for the time that you've been given it, uh, I think is, is important too. Yeah. And sort of pivoting into, you know, we've sort of talked in the context of uh, from the, the the leader that, you know, the bishop or the least side president doing these things. But one of the greatest blessings of my time serving as a bishop and in state presidency callings is that 
it helped me realize how uh, influential I could be in those things, in those positions, but mo- most importantly, how easy it was for me to inf- be influential outside of those positions. And so since that time, I've, I've really, it's really helped me to say like, you know, I have a stewardship here, even though it's maybe not official, you know, it's not outlined in the handbook, but as a general member, I'm a better leader without a calling as because I was a leader with a calling, but it doesn't require that leadership role as calling to sort of take on that mindset and move forward and say, you know, I'm going to make a difference in this ward, even if I'm the every other Thursday in March Sunday school teacher, right? I'm, I'm going to have an impact and an influence. And, and there's that sort of that dynamic of people getting this mode of thinking, well, if I was bishop or if I was really side president, mm-hmm. I'd do it different. Well, then go do it different, right? And, and that doesn't mean you step on their toes or try and overshadow them or things, but just start acting and creating influence and, and uh, you'll be shocked at the stewardship that you really do have even without a calling. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the church uh, describes stewardship as taking care of those things with which we are blessed from God. So that's basically everything, right? You know, taking yeah. <laughs> care. And President Nelson says, we, uh, we own very little, but are stewards over much. We're all kind of passing through. <laughs> and I think building those steward habits while a leader and then continuing to apply them afterwards, I love that. Yeah, absolutely. You're much more aware of needs and how to serve would be beyond the calling. And, and you realize that actually it didn't have a whole, it didn't, a lot of what you did didn't have a ton to do with your actual calling, which then can help take the ego out of all this and help yes. us be part of the system, whatever calling we happen to have. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right, Andrew, I've sort of, I don't know how far I've taken you off, off your uh, outline here. I've, <laughs> no, I've, I've, no, you've no, inserted some great quotes. What have we missing? You So you talk about the you just mentioned that the pass-through dynamic uh, is, as far as stewardship. Uh, any Anything we're missing on that concept? I mean, I do love Khalil Gibran's poem on children, uh, which I think is a powerful concept for parents. Your children, and the poem says, your children are not your children. They are the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but not from you. And though they are with you, yet they belong not to you. Uh, if you can really have this sense of the passing through, that when someone sustains you, um, there's a sustaining power that actually is not like transmitted to you, but it's almost passing from them to you back to them. It's this cycle. Mm. When they when you pay your tithing, it's passing through. Uh, you pay it to the church and the church then will serve you by building a temple nearby uh, that you can then go serve others with. Uh, when you use the priesthood, of course, it is passing through you. Uh, it is you. It is not about you. It is not um, belonging to you uh, or owning. It is passing through. Uh, the scriptures, you think about these prophets that have been writing and they pass it on. They, they're passing it on. They're writing. And, and maybe some of them are more clear, I think, about what the end result will be than others. But they are writing and they're passing it on and passing it on and hoping and wondering, you know, what's next, this passing through. So I think that's just an important concept for a leader in a system to keep in mind is that this beautiful concept of passing through. Yeah. And I love that from the, just the general members perspective, thinking like, you know, if you are frustrated with your bishop or your leader, like it's important that we recognize and that we're, we're operating under the authority of priesthood keys. And that's why that, you know, figurehead is often there. But that stewardship is passing, you know, as we sustain them, we're, that's passing through them back to us and empowers us to say, 
you know, okay, I may not agree with my bishop on a whole lot of things, and he's not running the ward how I maybe would run it or would encourage him to run it, but it's back at me, right? And it, that's really empowering to understand that concept of, of passing through. Yeah, I agree completely. So I think that's a that's a helpful helpful concept. All right. The, um, the next principle, and maybe again, maybe we've talked about these things, but the key characteristics of Stuart leaders include deep humility and fierce will. Have, have we touched on that? I mean, we, I, we definitely talked on the humility and the ego piece, and I really loved that discussion and conversation. I do. We didn't talk a lot about the fierce will, and humility doesn't mean sitting back uh, and seeing what happens and not and deflecting everything. And it, it, there's actually this combination of, of drive with a steward leader. Um, they are active. Uh, now, the activity might not be the kind of stereotypical leader. It might be a lot of listening. It might be a lot of questions. It might be putting other people up to speak and facilitate and minister, but it's not absent a whole lot of action. So I think that's just an important point is you are part of something bigger. It is going to go on beyond you. You know, don't just hang out. This you, yeah. the, the fierce will matters. Yeah, no, I love that concept. My mind goes to a talk that Elder Bednar gave a few conferences ago about meekness. Um, and because oftentimes in, in our church culture, you can feel like, you know, humility is so uh, emphasized, which is good, right? But, and we kind of get in this mode of, gee, you know, I don't know, me, like the bishop, okay, you know, but then we suddenly become this pushover of, you know, I just want everybody to be loved and, you know, let's not do this or that, but to, it takes a little bit of like humility doesn't mean we have to be a pushover and, and there's got to be this little bit of fierce will or fire in your belly of saying like, we're going to accomplish something great, you know, and this is what it looks like. And humility is one thing, but meekness is maybe a little bit more, you know, think of the, the savior's actions. Like he didn't just sort of walk around like, oh, gee, I guess I'm the son of God. Me, really? I don't know. But I mean, he was very intentional and, you know, coaching people mm-hmm. directly. I mean, when you think about their relationship with Peter, I mean, that was a fierce will that Christ had in his uh, in his stewardship and in his ministry. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and, and certainly, I mean, I love how the, the handbook and the leadership chapter really basically, there's a lot of great stuff there. Uh, but in essence, it's follow the Savior. Uh, go yeah. study, go study his leadership. Uh, and yeah. that's you know, that would be another couple hours if you want to go that direction. Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) And and I think people like really respond to that. I think, you know, throughout the various wards I've been, and you sort of pick up on some leaders who just sort of seem like the nice guy that the pushover and you're thinking like, hey, and I'm here to support you, but I'm not, (laughs) I'm not feeling much energy from you here, you know? And so that can, it can really make a difference in empowering others. Yeah. So in the, in the handbook, uh, there's this great section on leadership 4.2 and 4.2.4 talks about a calling or assignment to preside does not make the person who receives it more important or valued than others. Uh, it talks about not aspiring. Whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. And then there's this piece around delegation uh, down here. And again, all of this goes back to how did the Savior lead? He gave his disciples meaningful assignments and responsibilities. He held them accountable. Um, and part of how you manage your time effectively is delegating. And if you try to do too much, you will surely wear away, quoting Exodus there, uh, and, and how it will not just get the work done, but you're also going to help others grow. And I think that's another piece around system leadership and steward leadership is how are you setting up others to lead in formal or informal ways, but that will also just make for um, smoother transitions. So there's, there's a lot there, and I would recommend you know any leader spending some time in, in 4.2, and you'll see a lot of these same kind of steward leader principles 
and how to lead effectively in the system. Yeah. And I love these little uh, principles, topics that we're hitting on, because if if maybe you're in a state presidency you're thinking, what are we going to talk about next high council meeting? Well, take that paragraph or that section in the handbook and uh, get some dialogue going. I mean, there's going to be some incredible inspiration that will come from from really wrestling with some of those words, right? Absolutely. Um, all right. We talked about this quite a bit. Uh, the, the work did not begin when a leader was sustained and will go on long before their time in any given calling. The beauty of it is when leaders espouse this leadership philosophy, they then do work that can impact generations. Whereas if they are preoccupied with plans and programs for their for their moment on the stand, it will likely fizzle once they're, they're off of it. And I think you touched on this as you talked about your previous stake president, but any, anything to add? Because this is one thing that it's so hard to get out of the the programs and activities. And, you know, right now, like all leaders feel trapped in a, in a different way with, with this pandemic. It's like, well, I'm useless. I'm, I'm here if you need me. Let's zoom <laughs> if we need to do a temple recommend or whatever. Right. And so how is anything else you would add as far as like stimulating this generational impact that uh, where your name will fade away, but your influence won't? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that there is a, uh, it's, it's, there's almost a, there's something paradoxical about it. Maybe it goes back to the if you, you know, he who will uh, save his life will lose it, he will lose his life will save it. That if you are too focused on your own program, uh, your own initiative, it's less likely to last. Whereas if you focus on principles, and I think a lot of them that we've talked about here, it will just go on beyond you. And it really can impact generations. And, you know, it's interesting in the pandemic setting, if, uh, if leaders have really empowered families uh, in this stage, you've got generational impact right here, right now, happening all the time. If leaders have focused on the home-centered piece, if they have empowered ministering brothers and sisters to really connect in meaningful ways, this generational impact is actually maybe more present now in some ways than it was uh, when we were going to church each week in the building. Yeah. Yeah. And that stewardship, I mean, is always, you're always in the middle of the stewardship, even if you're at home with your family, there's a lot of stewardship yes. uh, responsibilities there, you know? Yes. So um, this last point, the key behaviors of leaders who practice good stewardship would include empowering all members to serve one another, uh, having stake ward youth councils work as true leadership teams, listening, asking questions and keeping the cause as a constant North star for every action. I think we sort of started there. Anything else you would add uh, to that? I would just say, keep following the lead of our incredible leader, uh, President Nelson right now, certainly the savior, first and foremost, which we talked about, but you'll see how he leads uh, and how he empowers and wherever you are, see what you can do to emulate some of those practices and principles. But yeah, we, we did talk about some of those key behaviors. I say here, you know, the cause as a constant North Star, I think that's important too, that, that helps us remember what is this actually all about? Get even beyond, get even beyond the organization uh, of the church and into the work of salvation. Then all of a sudden that merger of self might feel a little closer. Yeah, love that. Well, I got one more question for you, but uh, if people want to learn more about the Partnership for Public Service, your organization yeah. and, and the good work you're doing, where would you send them? They, uh, they can go to ourpublicservice.org. So it's O-U-R publicservice.org. There's a lot there to see the good work that government is doing on behalf of all you know, all of us in this country, and honestly around the world, that none of us will ever see or know about. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I would would certainly welcome people to go uh, take a look at that. And we also have a leadership model for those who are interested in in leadership. We have a public service leadership model 
that's that's in the that's on the site. We can maybe put it in the the notes, the specific link there. There's principles of stewardship, um, of commitment to public good, uh, becoming self-aware, engaging others, leading change, achieving results. Some uh, some good uh, resources there that are more public service oriented, but uh, a lot of good stuff that would apply to to leaders in the church too. Awesome. Well, this has been fun. And uh, the last question I have for you, Andrew, is as you reflect on your time as a leader yourself, you know, in the church leading and, and trying to emulate some of these principles you've you've touched on, uh, how has leading made you a better follower of Jesus Christ? I appreciate the question. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm reflecting here. It has shown me, I mean, not maybe maybe I'm going to sound, sound like a broken record on this, but it's shown me how it's not about me as a leader. And, and again, like you said, like there, can, there can be a struggle to truly internalize that uh, and truly believe that because of the natural man, because of the recognition or the self-importance that just kind of comes along with us. But as I have sought to lead, I have found that it works so much better when I am thinking of the two great commandments to love God with everything I have and to give him glory and really keep the eye single there, like protect the heart with holiness and to love my neighbor. And having had opportunities to lead, it has really helped bring clarity to those two great commandments in ways that I'm I'm really grateful for uh, that have certainly shifted my my life as a disciple. And again, I, I hope and plan and I'm committed to them outlasting any particular calling I have. I know that these callings are temporary, but my commitment as a disciple is eternal. And I'm, and I'm all in on that. That concludes my interview with Andrew Marshall. A big thank you to Lark Galley for arranging this, for sending that message to me at leadingsaints.org slash contact. That's how a lot of these phenomenal interviews come to be. I just get an email from somebody somewhere in the world and they say, hey, I have somebody you should really reach out to. Now, obviously, able to reach out to everybody or consider everybody. There's only 52 weeks in a year and we only need to do one episode a week. And so sometimes it's hard to fit in all these great minds. But nonetheless, it's always great to be connected. So if you know somebody who we should reach out to, connect with, and uh, consider featuring on the Leading Saints podcast, please go to leadingsaints.org contact. Thanks for listening. And uh, don't forget to go to leadingsaints.org contact and let us know what topics we could cover, what insights you had from listening to this. And you can comment on the social media where this will be posted or right on at leadingsaints.org, wherever on the uh, page of this interview be fun to hear what insights really stood out to you. And remember, text the word LEAD to 474747 to gain access to remarkable interviews in the Questioning Saints library so that you are better prepared to minister to those who've begun to question their faith. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.